millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you lived in London, where the whole system is one of false good fellowship, and you may know a man for 20 years without finding out that he hates you like poison, you would soon have your eyes opened. There we do unkind things in a kind way. We say bitter things in a sweet voice. We always give our friends chloroform when we tear them to pieces. George Bernard Shaw, you never can tell. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckled. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, almost like culture or anything. <laughs> No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, October the 5th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we've got a fantastic vista of London today. I think there's not a landmark that I can't see from here. There's even one or two landmarks that I've learnt today. Pictures, I'm sure, will be available via the usual methods. And with me here, hosting us, in fact, is uh, Christopher Fowler. He's the multi-award-winning author of 35-ish novels. Uh, I like the, the way that he's lost count. Uh, he's the author, particularly, of the Brian and May mystery novels and has written comedy and drama for BBC Radio, uh, stuff for Radio 1. He also contributes to Financial Times Independent on Sunday, Black Static Magazine and many, many more. Uh, Fiona Rule 
is a freelance writer and researcher with a particular interest in London and especially the Victorian era. And over the past 10 years, Fiona has uh, written lots of articles for magazines, journals, and in 2008, her first book, The Worst Street in London, came out, followed up quickly by one about London's Docklands and the latest, which is out uh, just this last month. It's London's Labyrinth, the story of the underground city. And uh, she's here too. Hello, you both. Hello. Hi there. We should perhaps start with the interest in London because, of course, that's what unites everybody who's connected with this um, show. But how, how many of your uh, books are London-based and how much of your uh, writing, Chris, has been uh, London-focused? Um, nearly every single one of them because um, I was born in London and uh, I think it's partly laziness. You tend to write about the things you know most. Uh, and uh, But then at some point uh, I became a bit London-obsessive and started digging around a lot and of course the trouble is the more you find out about London the more there is to find um, so I, I'm, as far as I'm concerned it's going to sustain me right through my career writing about the city and the Victorian era holds a particular attraction for you Fiona why so um, I think with the Victorian era and the same could be said of the Edwardian era as well is that it's just out of reach we've got things around that we see every day that are leftovers from an era that was very very different to today and I think that makes it fascinating because you can get a glimpse but you can't see the whole picture well, I think that's particularly pertinent given the place we're in at the moment, which has its roots firmly, I think, in the Victorian canals and uh, we're surrounded by water. The building itself is shaped in accordance with that theme. Yeah, it's shaped like a barge and uh, echoes all the barges that are around us, uh, which were mostly used to bring in ice uh, to create London's ice cream fad of the uh, the late uh, 1900s right yes we're just around the corner from the canal museum of course and what i had no idea about is that the canals and the ice cream industry are so closely connected yes senor gatti used to um carve his shave his uh, the, the ice that went into the hokey pokey um hand carts that went round uh, the strand selling ice cream Okay, so uh, we've got a a rich history and we're going to delve into it uh, as we go on. Um, Can we talk a little bit about London's Labyrinth, though? Because this is a a fine book, as I say, just out. uh, London's Labyrinth, the world beneath the city's streets. The the risk is that there's been a book about every aspect of London already. How well trodden did you find the the tunnels and the footways and the, uh, the areas under the city? Well, yeah, there's no denying that um, underground London has been written about quite quite a great deal, in fact. Um, but what I wanted to do with with this book is what I do with all my books. I'm more interested in the normal people that were involved in the creation of London, not so much the great and the good. We all know about Joseph Bazalgette. We all know about Charles Pearson. You know, we all know about um, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. I'm equally and perhaps more interested in the navvies and the gangers and the labourers that actually built these places and the lives that they led and, you know, the the conditions that they had to face. I mean, for instance, one of the things that really staggered me, actually, was when Brunel was building his experimental Thames Tunnel back in the 1820s. These chaps that went and actually dug underneath the Thames, this had never been done before, and they were going metres underneath the Thames not knowing whether the roof was going to cave in and they would be drowned. These were incredibly brave people. And I find that fascinating that, you know, that people were prepared to do that um, just for the sake of experimentation, really, more than anything else. I think histories of 
working class individuals, I suppose we've got to call them working class individuals in the, in the context that we're talking here, is a reasonably recent phenomenon, isn't it, to look at that strata of life prior to, uh, say, late Victorian times. I think I'm right in saying that the focus was very much more on notable uh, people, you know, people further up the social scale. So how, how do you go about connecting with people of that sort and how close can you get to them i think you can get surprisingly close i think the whole interest in um you know your average man on the street really started to come out of the fact that people got very interested in their own family history and let's face it most of us don't come from a terribly eminent family where you had you know politicians or barons or whatever but part of your family most of us come from families you know that were agricultural laborers or shop workers or whatever and i think the the interest in the ordinary person has come out of that and um, it's surprising the amount of information that you can find out about these people once you actually start digging and looking at newspaper reports and looking at censuses and all sorts of things and uh, you know you can find an awful lot. There's a, there's a really trite connection here between digging under the surface. Which I'm going to resist. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> there was a, they did a great um, oral history um, thing at uh, the Museum of London, whereby yeah. they recorded uh, uh, people who were in their 90s, memories of people in their 90s. And of course, you, that, what you were saying about Victorian period and Edwardian period being just out of reach, suddenly um, it was within reach because these were people with direct memories. And what they did was they, they dotted the recordings on telephones or around the the building and so when you're suddenly it's like you're listening to a phone call from your gran and it really brought to life and they've just done the same thing at the um at the foundling museum where they've 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 got memories of people who grew up in the foundling hospital um which you can listen to as oral histories so again it just really does feel like you you it's that last link to the past is still there yeah do you find yourself doing a similar sort of research for your work Chris yeah because I think the internet only takes you so far and library books only take you so far um, f- for me I did one of the Brian to May stories set in the Blitz so the first thing I did was ask my mum because she was a secretary in the Strand during the Blitz and one of the first things she said to me was I remember all the telephone directories and I said well what do you mean she said well the first thing that happened was all the plate glass which was relatively new to the strand all the plate glass windows had been blown in and so many so that they ran out of sandbags and used telephone directories to block all the all the all the windows up and she said i just remember all these walls of telephone directories these are the kind of details that you just don't find in uh, library books yeah i think also that um people that have lived through different eras should really be encouraged to talk about it because i try and talk to you know older people a lot as research because it's an absolute mine of information but i think generally what happens the, their opening gambit is oh well i don't know anything about that but they do and once you actually start asking them questions it's fascinating what they come out with the devil's in the detail i think in a lot of things and this is what talking to people and getting oral histories can give you Right, and that's a lot of detail that they would perhaps consider to be uh, uninteresting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had the same experience. I was watching uh, an old bit of footage from maybe the late 60s or something like that of people who'd been on the Titanic talking about it and to realise how close to hand, but like you say, just out of reach now. But it's often, as you say, it's often in the around the edges of the things that were saved from the time because the, the BBC famously wiped all its videotapes 
um, you know, they, they kept all the, sh- the recorded Shakespeare, which is probably the least interesting stuff they could have kept. And then a clip surfaced on YouTube of Kenneth Williams going back to his childhood home in Marchmont Street, Bloomsbury. And he walked through the building, and at the back of the building, and this must have been filmed in the mid-70s, there were still the tem- tenement uh, balconies strung with washing that obviously are, are gone now. And I had no idea that just behind that building, which now has a blue black, black there were all these tenement um, properties. It's perhaps worth saying something about how this area has changed, because before we started recording, you were mentioning that in the last 10 years it's undergone a radical transformation. We're, of course, quite close to St Pancras Station. Could you, could you talk us through what's, what you've seen in the last 8, 10 years? Sure. It was um, a large area of, where, of small warehouses. There were things like um, the Guinness uh, bottle washing plant was here. Um, a lot of people working with very unpleasant uh, chemicals, uh, young girls dealing with uh, mercury. In fact, their skeletons went on display in uh, the Welcome uh, uh, Museum, and um, the, the skeletons were bright green where they suffered mercury poisoning. So uh, if you look at old footage of the canals, even in the 70s, it was a solid morass of mud with cars stuck up out of it. It was like a sort of desolate, um, very, very depressed uh, area. And um, there was a big scheme to pave over all of the canals and turn them into car parks, which didn't go through mercifully. And now we've got uh, the water is so fresh that it's full of fish. Um, but what they've done is they've kept a lot of the old warehouses and made them into mixed use. So opposite me, they've torn down an old pub, which used to have a well in the basement, and it's now the headquarters of the Guardian, uh, a concert hall, uh, a couple of art galleries, restaurants. And the huge brown site behind it is now going to be home to 27 new streets and town squares, where the old gas holders used to be. In some areas, the gentrification and reuse, particularly of industrial work, and particularly along the riverside, tends to be bemoaned by people who sort of see that as having pushed out, uh, for example, river life and and so forth. But it sounds as though this area was uh, not doing so well. But is there anything that's been uh, lost around here as a result of this change? I actually watched, um, there was a TV series recently about um, the, the streets of London, the six streets of London and there was a guy standing in the Caledonian Road complaining oh it's not what it was and I'm, I do actually think thank God when I used to come up here and my uncles used to live in King's Cross and you'd step over drug addicts and there were, there were prostitutes everywhere and I don't really I don't understand what's been lost from that past. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking, Christopher, about the, the gas holders that were over at uh, St Pancras. Apparently, there's plans to actually reinstate them. They're up north at the moment somewhere, being cleaned up, and then they're going to be reinstated in a slightly different position, but still in the whole sort of King's Cross St Pancras complex. And they're actually going to build apartments inside them, which I think is quite fascinating. And I, I can't wait to see what they look like, actually. Does that mean the penthouse goes up and down according to how much gas is in there? I'm, I'm not sure whether you've just horrified Chris completely. <laughs> no, I, I did actually see that on the plans. And my only problem with that is you'll be looking out of all these steel bits and it must be a bit like being in prison. But uh, it, there's, they've kept one over there. And, uh, yeah, the other, I think one's going to be a park. Um, but already, as you've seen, the new Granary Square is open with 1,200 fountains in it that roll like a huge wave. And the first thing that's happened is families take their kids on hot days there 
to, to dance through the fountains. It's, it's become a bit of a local uh, focal point. That's very exciting. That's a treasure I've heard nothing about. I'm looking, actually, Fiona, at a picture in your book here. It's entitled The Fleet River Near St Pancras, 1825. It's an engraving, and we can see a wooden shack that looks pretty dilapidated by the side of a, a very modest river and a couple wandering along the towpath in what essentially is green fields with a, a few small houses in, in the background. So that can't be very far from where we are right now. What a radical transformation. Very radical transformation. I think um, one of the things that really interested me when I was writing about London's labyrinth is all the lost rivers that are actually underneath London. And it, a lot of it wasn't really an intentional, um, yes, let's put this river into a pipe and bury it. It was just a gradual thing that happened as London was growing. Because you'd have a river flowing through an area, and because there were lots of people there, it got filled with rubbish and so then it got terribly smelly and people didn't like it so they paved over it and this is how kind of it gradually the rivers started to disappear it wasn't really by design it was it was more by accident that they started to disappear and I think um, a lot of people don't really realize that there are numerous rivers flowing underneath London that we just completely forget about the fleet being one of them. And uh, I know these have been the subject of uh, discussion. There's one or two other uh, reasonably well visited, such as the the underground during war. Um, But you've dug up some... I must stop saying digging up. It sounds sounds every time like I'm making a cheap pun there. Uh, We're kind of familiar, I guess, with the Second World War image of people hiding in the tunnels to escape. And, of course, there's loads of Churchill's uh, war rooms and all that sort of thing going on on the tube. Uh, What I didn't realise is... And it's very exciting when you start the chapter and it's, well, the the war was starting to rumble along, people went down. And you realise this is 1914 and, in fact, the uh, the tube network, I think it was the post office tube network, um, uh, the half-constructed network, was being used to house mummies, amongst other things. Yes, the uh, the post office railway, which operated until reasonably recently, I remember you could go down and have a look at it. Well, during the First World War, this this partially built railway was used to house a lot of the artefacts from the British Museum and other art galleries because, of course, it was the perfect place to go and put very valuable things because it was unlikely that they would get terribly damaged in there. Including the royal family? <laughs> Including the royal family, yes. <laughs> what, what was the, uh, what was the, the, the more surprising uh, aspects of what you've discovered underground, though? Because, as I say, that's, that's the sort of thing we might have half an idea about, whereas uh, things perhaps around um, hiding various departments under things in Dollis Hill, the Admiralty, I think, had a place up in Cricklewood or something that was half submerged under an innocuous-looking bill. Um, and, and what, what other sort of surprises lurk under the soil or have lurked under there? I think the most interesting thing that I found when I was researching it is the fact that London Underground don't throw anything away. I was lucky enough to um, have a few tours of disused underground stations and disused parts of stations that are still in use today and it's quite incredible because hidden behind these corridors that thousands of people walk along every day are doors that are almost sort of hidden in the wall and if you walk through that door you are in a completely different world and what happens with most of London Underground's things is when they decide to decommission something they literally close the door on it and lock it um, I saw the old flood barriers before the um, the Thames barrier came into use. They had flood barriers that would come down um, in the tubes to stop London flooding. And there's a whole control centre that's still there behind a door in a tube station. I just I'll, You walk along the platform and go through this door and there's the control centre. It's quite incredible, really. Everyone will be dying to know which tube station. 
Um, I'm not sure whether I'm actually allowed to say. Oh, is it really restricted yeah, information? I th- yeah, I'm afraid so. So um, it's in central London, but um, I, I don't think I'm at liberty to say which one it is. But I did go also to Down Street Station, which is um, an old disused station that was in between Hyde Park Corner and Green Park on the Piccadilly line. And that's fascinating because that was used as offices during the Second World War. And there's still stuff down there from the war, like the old telephone exchange. And you can still see the showers and the baths because, of course, people actually lived down there if the, if the bombing was actually going on. It, quite incredible. There's a, a tube station just out of the sight of this window, which is on York Way, which is disused. And one of the reasons why it's never been reopened is it's the only station in London where the, escal- the, where the elevator opens directly onto the platform, thereby creating a massive fire hazard. Um, and it's too expensive to restore. So it's, it's used by um, LT workers. Um, so it's oh, and indeed we have a picture in Fiona's book here. All oh, right, excellent. Uh, the 1927 picture of the York Road station, and that's the booking hall just there. And in the background there, I think we can. Is that the elevator we can see? Well, no. I, what I like about this particular picture is that it, there's a ghost in it, which is obviously because of old photographic techniques. But if you look at the picture, there's a, the ghostly figure of a man walking through the uh, the station. So. Yes, not not too sure about that ghost. I've actually I've actually just used that tube station as the location of a story for a, um, an anthology <laughs> because of its its supposed ghostly connections. But um, it's interesting. The, 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 uh, the, the combination of ghosts and rivers always go together because rivers are associated with lowlands, they're damp, high infant mortality, the creation of ghost stories. So ghost stories come from the low ground of London and never the high ground, never the Hampsteads, always the Deptfords. Where do your two writing practices part ways? Of course, there's the the obvious large overlap of uh, perhaps subject matter and perhaps the historical research. But Chris, where does your uh, stuff take off from there? Not not least, of course, being uh, fictional. Yeah, I tend to take... uh, I work in a lot of different genres and I tend to take the odd massive leap of of uh, logic into more the more fantastical areas of London, one of them being mythical London, which I come back to quite a lot. And in fact, one of the Brian May mysteries is set in King's Cross because of Pentonville and Penton being a head and the idea that it was a sacrificial site because it was a, the head of the height of London. And, you know, the Penton gave us the symbol of the head on, on penny coins. And there is supposedly a sacrificial site. There's also supposed, supposedly a cave around here, Merlin's Cave. There was a pub until the 80s called the Merlin Pub. And there are, there are local experts in the area who hold talk, talks on this, centred around the old peace bookshop um, on the Caledonian Road, where they still discuss the mythology of the area. So... Um, this way madness lies because once you start digging into this you end up with quite a lot of very very obsessive people and at some point you have to go okay that's enough now now i'm going to add my own bit of fiction to it and then you spin it into something that kind of has a logical ending it seems to me in just the same way that it's possible to point at historical fact as discovered or as documented and say, well, this is how things were and this is not how things were. The, the, the brigade of uh, folk who have an interest in things like Hawksmoor and the uh, sort of slightly mystical side thereof and uh, Illuminati influence in London and ley lines and all that sort of stuff, there's a very deep and, and clearly held set of beliefs going on there. How, how much trouble do you run the risk of getting yourself into by departing from that, that orthodoxy? 
Well, actually, you get quite a lot of uh, letters about, you know, you do realise you're living on a confluence of ley lines, and that's where Alistair Crowley used to live. Well, as far as I can see, Alistair Crowley used to live just about everywhere in London. Um, <laughs> so once you start down that route, yeah, you do you do end up getting it. I don't want to end up going down and become becoming like one of those ufologists, you know, in America going on conventions to Area 51, because there are an awful lot of people that meet in, you know, old temperance halls to discuss the mythology of London. And I think the group is fair, the groups are fairly small in number, though. Without, without obviously uh, naming names, unless you feel a, a, an urge to, is there a lot of rivalry on the uh, his, historical, or uh, maybe historical writing scene? Well, if there is, I certainly don't get involved in it. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think so. I think with historical writing, I think what's really important is that you get your facts right. If you don't, then you are going to come up with a lot of flack from people, and rightly so. Um, I found it particularly um, a, a very good discipline, actually, when I was writing The Worst Street in London, because there's a section on Jack the Ripper. Now, this has you know the biggest following, and these people know every single tiny bit of information about the Whitechapel murders so I had to be very very careful and make sure that I got my facts absolutely right otherwise I knew I was going to come in for a lot of stick. So how did you go about that you must have a sort of a double checking process or something yes check and recheck and cross check as well so if i found a report in in a book i would check it against the newspapers of the time i really did get quite anoraki about the whole thing <laughs> christopher buried his head in his hands at the mention of jack the ripper there <laughs> yeah it kind of horrifies me really because there's so many books on jack the ripper as fiona says and um you see the tours going around you know in spittle spitalfields and you see people going upon this ncp car park was once a and you know you can see all these people trying desperately to imagine a victorian building there which is long gone i suppose the last one i can remember seeing on film was when james mason made the film called the london nobody knows where he stood in that he said come on let's go in and look at this back garden at this point one of the victims was was murdered and you go oh actually yeah i can see this still has the shade of victoriana in this footage but you go back now and it's yeah pretty much gone I'm sad that Telly Savalas, who did a fantastic video for Birmingham promoting the city in, ooh, let's say, the 70s, without ever visiting, apparently, but he did a great voiceover in this uh, in this cheesy video promoting Birmingham, and I really wish he'd done the same for London. I'd watch that. I'd probably watch it repeatedly. <laughs> so. Actually, um, they did the same thing. They hired Boris Karloff to promote London pubs. Um, I knew the creative director who hired him, and he said it was a bit of a shot in the foot because it actually just scared people off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I've got to drop this in because we're on the uh, we're touching the subject of pubs. You mentioned earlier that you uh, know a handlebar moustache-oriented pub where people have the right to boot you out of the seat if their name is on a plaque at the table. Yeah, it's the RAF um, uh, London Pilots or the English Pilots pub, the Windsor Castle, just off the Edgware Road. In I think I'm right in saying Crawley Crawford Place, Crawford Place. And it's completely stuffed, every square inch stuffed with uh, either uh, flying memorabilia from the uh, Dan Buster's logbooks through to um, China, China plates depicting uh, the royal family and Dickie Henderson for some unearthly reason who must have maybe sung in the pub. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I know this pub. I haven't frequented it as much as Christopher, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> I, I, it's an amazing pub. And I think if anybody is near Crawford Place, it is definitely worth a visit because it's just a fascinating, very quirky, very unique place. 
I think I'm going to be paying a visit. We'll be talking in just a moment about how stuff from King's Cross helped to rebuild Moscow. There's just time before we do that to mention our sponsors this week, and they are doingsomething.co.uk. If you're interested in uh, finding great dates and fun things to do and meeting up with people who've got similar interests to yourself, whether that's a a date in the perhaps romantic sense or just wanting to tie up with people and uh, have a bit of fun in this big city, maybe, maybe jump into fountains as previously suggested this is the way to do it just go to doingsomething.co.uk forward slash londonist and i think you can put your name on there and see who else is on there and then if you're interested you can exchange messages date people and use london for the purpose for which it was intended or something doingsomething.co.uk forward slash londonist so, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule, as we survey the very pleasant surroundings here around the back of King's Cross St Pancras, I'm looking at a picture which <laughs> shows a large heap of ash. What's this all about, Fiona? Well, this is a story um, called London Rubble, How the City's Soil Gets Recycled. And basically it's talking about when building works go on, um, you know, what do people actually do with the soil? Um, there's uh, The picture that we we're actually looking at was for um, on the site of King's Cross Railway Station. Um, and apparently some of that rubble was actually bought by the Russians who uh, mixed the ash into bricks to help them build a war-ravaged Moscow, which is quite fascinating. What, what's the year of this that we're talking, give or take? Um, it's uh, 1848 um, is when that happened. Um, by uh, the account of this picture, in 1848, King's Cross looked like a lot of allotments surrounded by a bit of a wood with this... It really is a mountain, isn't it? It's got horse and carts going up there to deposit more waste up a track up the middle. Uh, not probably the sort of thing that would have encouraged you to move in here if it had <laughs> been here, Christian. A giant heap of rubbish, but it's quite strange when you think that it was once a royal spa because Nell Gwynne lived here and there were ornamental fountains and peacocks strutting around in King's Cross. So it, it was quite a tumble from grace to end up as being London's rubbish spot. So this area has really gone through some astonishing oscillations in fortune. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it, I guess because it's so central to, well, particularly since the steam age, it became a very, very central uh, connection point for London to the Midlands. Um, that it has just gone through an astonishing number of changes. There's also, um, the story goes on to sort of talk about um, more modern things, really, that uh, rubbish that's been excavated, well, not really rubbish, but soil, etc., that's been excavated from London sites has um, gone to be used for. And one of the ones that um, I hadn't really thought about before, but, of course, I um, the result of, of stuff that's been moved from one place to another is, uh, I think it's pronounced Northala Field, near Northolt and anybody that uses the A40 would um, would know these mounds they almost look kind of neolithic in um, in structure because they 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 look a bit like burial mounds but now you can actually walk up them there's little paths that sort of go around the circumference of the uh, the mounds and you can walk up to the top which is quite quite amazing really so i suppose this is something that might have cropped up in your investigations into things like excavating the tube what, what went on with all the stuff all the all the earth that came out from the tube where did that all end up well, it, a lot of um, where the stuff from the tube ended up um, is quite mysterious. There's no real major documentation um, about where it came, went from. Um, but I think some of it went over to America 
Um, where, yes, apparently so. Where they used it as infill for building sites, etc., on ships. Now, what, what's the thinking there? Because they've surely got a fair bit of uh, land that they could put in holes. You would have thought so, but yeah, there's documentation there that sort of says that maybe some of it went over there, um, and also they some of it went to other places in London. I mean, part of um, what this London rubble story is talking about is Stamford Bridge, um, which um, apparently um, some of the land that was dug out to build the uh, the metropolitan line was actually used as infill for uh, for Stamford Bridge I'm particularly fascinated by the old nickel rookery of Dickens's time which has since become uh, well it looks a bit like a bandstand is perched on the top of it <laughs> yeah the old nickel rookery in Shoreditch um, is a very interesting area I don't know whether um, either of you saw the program um, it was part of the city streets um, series that they did on the BBC and it was a really interesting program about how um, Arnold Circus actually came about and um, basically potted history of it is that the old nickel rookery was probably one of the worst areas of London, terribly run down terribly overcrowded, all the ills of, of a city were, were there well, We should probably say, because not everyone will know what a rookery was a rookery um, was... I don't really know why they were called rookeries because, you know, they don't really resemble rookeries up in trees, but uh, rookeries, how I imagined them to be, were real sort of, you know, labyrinthine um, dwellings, really. They were houses that had probably been built for a completely different purpose, a completely different class of person, and had gradually deteriorated. The rooms had all got split up and cordoned off, and so you had lots of poor families um, living in a building... That it really wasn't designed for that purpose. It didn't have um, enough basic facilities like water facilities, toilets, etc., etc. Um, and so, consequently, um, the rookeries were basically slums. Um, and the people that lived there um, had dreadful lives, really. Um, and the old nickel was one of the most notorious um, in London, particularly by the end of the 19th century, when it had become terribly overcrowded. And what the, um, the I believe it was the London County Council decided to do was completely demolish it and build um, new model dwellings. At the time, this was a big thing that was happening in London, the whole model dwelling things. Um, you've got things like the Peabody buildings, which are still around today. You know, this was philanthropic dwellings for the poor. Unfortunately, the only thing with these philanthropic dwellings was that they weren't really designed to help the people that um, had previously lived on the land that they were built on. So, for example, in the Old Nickel, you had what can only be described as an underclass, really. And in order to go to the new buildings that they built there, you had to have some form of income. And, of course, the people that had lived in the rookery didn't. And so they were basically pushed out. It's the age-old problem of what do you do for the people that are, are really unable to help themselves. Well, yes, this has been very much what we've been talking about recently, and that, that uh, phrase, affordable housing, seems to uh, apply somewhere along the line here, doesn't it? Yeah, um, just on a note on... Um the, the rookery thing, I always assumed it was because of the noise, because they were all so narrow, and the, 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 the argument was that once a policeman entered a rookery, the cry went up through the, through the rookery, that, and they all, thought, they all caught the cry, policeman in the rookery, so uh, everybody suddenly you know, shut up shop, and, uh, because obviously there was a, quite a lot of crime, in, crime based in those areas. Well, this is very much one of your specialist areas, surely, uh, the, 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 how crime and London intersect with each other. And uh, Could we say something about Bryant and May? When, when are they operating? 
Yeah, they kind. Of, well, I kind of shift their dates about all over the place because I, I'm working on a on um, cataloging Bryant's unreliable memoirs, which allows me to slide the dates quite nicely because if they're in their eighties. Um, it's a bit like saying, you know, why don't the Simpsons ever get any older? Well, it's a bit stupid because it's, it's, I'm writing fiction, so I don't mind that they don't get older. But it does create a problem for me if I want to set stories in the, in the 40s and the 50s. But I, I do, and then I, I, I slip the dates accordingly. And it allows me to write in things which are... And I've just done a story which is uh, based in, in The Great Smog in 1952. Um, and then I'll, I've got one in Swinging London, and you can you can cover different different eras. And then as soon as you start researching anything in that particular era, why I went into the career of Simon D this morning, you know the the sixties uh, talentless TV presenter who interviewed everyone famous, got too big for his boots, and crashed and burned in the space of two years, destroyed his career. Uh, and went from London's most famous person, you know, media person, down to nobody. It was, it was uh, really a, sort of a, a, a by road that I got taken down researching a story. And I don't know about you, Fiona, but I end up spending way too much time researching and then using about a hundredth of what I've discovered. And then cutting that in the final edit. Yeah, then, then you write it out completely because you realise you're just being boring. <laughs> What's the shtick with Bryant and May? What, what sort of detectives are they? Um, they 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 run a thing called the Peculiar Crimes Unit, which isn't quite as stupid as it sounds. It's um, the idea is that it was founded uh, during the war. Uh, Churchill did actually found a lot of small, unusual scientific uh, units during the war. My father worked in one, uh, and he was nineteen, I think. And that most of these were populated by very young men working for the government in a quite oblique way. So, um, for example, Churchill wanted to understand how camouflage worked in war. So he founded a unit not staffed by uh, military experts, but by members of the Royal Academy who understood how light fell. And they designed camouflage for battleships and tanks. This was this kind of free thinking. He also employed Dennis Wheatley to work out what the French might do, <laughs> which was, you know, which was really great. So, you know, we want to know what's going to happen. So let's get a speculative author, you know, to, uh, on board. And of course, Wheatley was very excited and eventually ended up working, you know, under the auspices of the government, which I think was this big secret dream to do. So the, um, the idea of my t- detectives is they run this, uh, cri- they've run this crime u- crimes unit forever. And the, the, the basic mission statement is to investigate crimes that may cause public unrest. So it's everything from you know, murder in a public space like a pub or a church uh, to, a, to a government scandal. To uh, I've done one, uh, one set on the building site of King's Cross in, in which uh, stuff is, is uncovered by earth movers. Um, I've done one set in the London Underground and one set in London pubs. And bit by bit, I'm covering virtually every possible London institution. I mean, London is just a fantastic mine of information. And as I think Chris... Another, said, another wonderful subterranean pun. I know. I've obviously got it on the brain, haven't I? <laughs> um, as Christopher said, you know, London is... Um, the more you find out about London, the more questions there are, actually. It's just a really weird thing about it. In fact, uh, last week I was down in Bloomsbury Square and they were doing... Uh, they had a book book sale to raise money for some local charity and there on the shirt one of the books i found on the stall was ap herbert's um pick it here ap herbert had picked through and he was very interested in the judicial system he picked through uh judgments at newgate to create a book of newgate 
prisoners' uh, excuses for <laughs> for their crimes. And I got this. I got this book. The lady said it, it'll cost you fifty p. And I said I think I should give you a quid for this because it's a really quite unusual book. Um, so as soon as you find something like that, here's another thing. It's not in print, and it's another source of information on London that I didn't know about. I've just remembered we've got news stories as well. I got so carried away with all this Londonism. Uh, what have we got going on here? Let's look at. Uh, well, this ties in historically, doesn't it? Forgotten Disasters is a series that Londonist has been running. And by the way, as always, the stories we're discussing here can be found on Londonist.com along with much, much more. And the series here, Forgotten Disasters, the Colney Hatch fire. Colney Hatch is perhaps a place in London that people are, uh, uh, some people might not be familiar with. It's not central. Who would lead in on this one? Um, yeah, I'll lead in on Colney Hatch because it's somewhere that I've I've kind of always known. Um, I've I've lived in North London and the vicinity all my life, and um, Colney Hatch was one of these places. When I was younger, it was it was quite a scary place, really, because it. I don't if people know what it looks like. It's a very kind of Victorian, slightly Gothic-looking place, um, quite forbidding, really. And I think it just had that aura about it that none of us really, you know, liked it very much, and it always looked a bit scary. And then uh, recently, I think in the last sort of ten years or so, it's been turned into this. Um, luxury housing development which has got the awful name of Princess Park. I mean I've got absolutely no idea why it's called Princess Park and I don't know I just personally I could never live somewhere that I knew had seen an awful lot of misery and an awful lot of you know sadness in it and um, I, I do wonder about the people that live there whether they ever sort of think about that you know when they're when they're living there probably not actually well we should we should say of course precisely what that misery is well um the misery was that um colney hatch was uh, one of london's um i think they used to call them lunatic asylums um but the thing was that you didn't go to these places because um you were necessarily um mentally ill you could go to these places if you'd had a lot of children out of wedlock you could go to these places if you had a drink problem you know it wasn't necessarily um that you were you know completely mad that you went there i saw i saw um, an entry for one of the bedlam um, inmates that said she's she was admitted suffering from hereditary disappointment <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are one way or another, aren't we? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think lunatic asylums, first of all, started to be places, um, at the, probably the beginning of the 1800s, as um, places that were really like hospitals, and the patients there got quite good care. I think what happened was, as cities developed and as London developed over the 1800s, these places, like the rest of the city, just got too overcrowded. And consequently, the patients that were in there suffered quite terribly. I think they were locked up for long periods of time because there weren't enough staff to, to care for them. And also, I think that there was just a, a really um, wrong perception of you know why, why people were in there. As I say, I, I know people who's... Um, well, I know one person in particular whose father was put in there because he had a drink problem. And it was just the most inappropriate place really to put somebody like that and 
1903 comes. I find it remarkable that this still existed in 1903. You sort of feel with the advent of the 20th century, lunatic asylums wouldn't exist anymore, but here they are. And it's an all-wooden wing of the building. Yes, and um, apparently the, uh, the the timber wards uh, caught fire. And um, at the time, there was a very strong wind blowing and uh, the, the fire spread. Um, there's a press report um, that's actually published on the, um, the article here um, from the Boston Evening Transcript and um, it's it's really quite awful what it's saying here. And before you read this I will just say uh, some listeners may find this disturbing. This is pretty graphic what's about to follow in the next moment here. It's saying some of the the lunatics were burned in their beds and the charged remains of others were found huddled together in corners while groups of partially consumed bodies on the site of the corridors showed that many persons lost their lives and sacrificed those of others in their frantic efforts to force a passage through the flames to the main building, which just presents such an awful picture, doesn't it? Um, apparently, um, as a result of the fire, uh, 52 people, all women, lost their lives. And all, all Jewish as well. No mention at all is made now on the website of the developer who's turned it into luxury apartments perhaps not surprisingly but uh, there's just a a sentence on the wikipedia page for the institution it's really been glossed over well i think the whole subject of the 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 lunatic asylums has been um, one tends to forget that bedlam is technically still in existence Um, it's called the royal bethlehem hospital it uh, is very careful to point out although its history is all there it's very careful to point out care and rehabilitation is is extremely different to um, days when they simply painted the walls blue and stuck a canary on each ward to cheer people up instead of actually letting them out that's that's horrific but funny isn't it (laughs) this this will sort everything out that was the extent of mental health care for canary or or, or invite or inviting people in for a shilling to come and poke Mm. them with a stick so I'm sure that was help of the, uh, part of the rehabilitative <laughs> process. Uh, no link whatsoever between uh, pictures of canaries and pictures of Fenton the dog, uh, which is what you're supposed to look for. You may know the Fenton video, the guy in uh, Richmond Park. I, don't, I haven't actually seen uh, an interview with him. N- not that there's much to be interviewed about, but he's, I think, just the, becoming the subject of such a, uh, a notorious bit of video footage in which his dog runs off uh, across Richmond Park chasing deer into the path of oncoming traffic. You'd have thought he might have something to say about uh, what it's like to be in that role. But uh, unbelievably, the story continues to grow. Not that there is a story, it was a dog running away. Uh, and now there's a Where's Wally inspired book which has been made, and you can look for Fenton the dog in a very chaotic sort of Richmond Park scene here. Same sort of idea, very colourful cartoons going on here. This video has had 7 million views. The artist and illustrator Martin Berry, who created the book's illustrations, says all the drawings are very complicated and you have to find Fenton each, in each one, as well as other things like his lead and colour. This is an important contribution to our cultural mosaic, is it not? Yeah, I, I, I think it's rather nice, though, isn't it? I must admit, uh, there's a picture um, on uh, the, uh, the underneath the article, um, and I have actually been looking for Fenton, I do confess. <laughs> I don't know whether he is in this picture or not, or whether it's just his lead and collar, but, uh, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. I do quite like the Where's Wally books as well, though, so... <laughs> well, he's now apparently got a whole bunch of merchandise, so when you go onto the YouTube click... Uh, he's, you know, you can get all this you know, Fenton tea towels or whatever, which is interesting. Kind of the way that you know, viral videos are now spawning their own mythologies. So you know, like the Gangnam Style video, you know, the, the silly Korean 
uh, uh, rapper is you know there's now thousands of versions of that and again he'll end up on tea towels <laughs> I do hope Fenton himself is seeing some of the financial action as a result of all of this <laughs> So something slightly more worthy. Let's come across to... Uh, there's a, a charity called Hands on London, and uh, they're doing good things uh, once again this winter. Christopher, what are they up to? Yeah, they want uh, volunteer wranglers to um, sort out their winter warm winter wear um, the first week of November. So the idea is, um, if you're going to buy a new coat, get rid of your old one, and uh, you can drop it off at one of over 80 different shelters and charities in London. And they need people to help with the task of collecting, sorting and distributing the donations. And they're going to start uh, uh, handing out... Which, and this is the bit I don't... We don't quite understand this bit. We wrap up London Oyster cards are being handed out on Monday the 5th of November and Tuesday the 6th of November. And then they're taking donations. So we're not quite sure what the... Oyster Cards part is about. No, in fact, I'd like to suggest, Hands on London, that perhaps uh, an, another press release or something, just to clarify this, because I think the, the idea of people getting their coats out there for people who are not warm enough obviously makes a massive amount of sense, very good idea. And uh, I think there's something to be said as well for making it easy for people to do as well, so that they don't have to worry about taking it down to the local charity shop or something. Now, but what's this Oyster Card business all about? It doesn't make a huge amount of sense. So some clarification would be good there. More importantly, though, if you want to get involved with uh, helping out, there are some dates that have been suggested here. As you say, there's uh, Wednesday the 7th to Friday the 9th of November uh, receiving donations, 7 till 11 a.m. And then on the weekends, they're looking for people to just kind of sort through those things. And uh, drivers are also needed to volunteer as well. So some really practical stuff that you could do to uh, help the homeless and the, the less well-off in the city. For for more information, you need to go to Wrap Up London and the email address you'll need for that is nicola at handsonlondon.org.uk and I'm sure the Oyster Card part of it will all sort of fall into place in some respect. Uh, actually, speaking of Oyster Cards, the ridiculous uh, bureaucracy continues apace at Transport for London who have issued a new Oyster Card for one year. Yes, it says um, that from the 1st of November, any Londoner aged 60 or over will be able to travel around the city for free. Um, and the mayor's announced that a 60-plus Oyster card that lowers the age of free transport. Um, and it will work on the tube, the buses, Dockman's Light Railway, trams and the overground, um, as well as most national rail service outside peak hours. Um until recently, anyone who'd um, blown out the candles for 60 could enjoy free travel on the Freedom Pass, which was is- issued by London councils. Um, and then in 2012, the government increased the qualification age for a Freedom Pass to 61, which I, I, this is all quite unfathomable to me, um, in line with the National Pensions for Women. OK. Um, and then the Mayor's new scheme now acts as a stopgap, so it offers free travel for that stolen year. So how does it? So this is a, a backtrack by another name, isn't it? So <laughs> this is exactly the same as the scheme before, but with more more bureaucracy paperwork. attached, more yeah. paperwork, and you've got to pay a, a ten pound fee 
for the, the privilege of uh, having it happen. What a peculiar arrangement. Yeah, this is not the sort of thing you want to know. I mean, I've thought that the last few years London's actually got a lot simpler in uh, getting around, and uh, I actually think the Oyster card is life-changing. When we were kids, we used to have things called Red Rovers, which for, for this, going back into old money before 1971, uh, for five bob you got uh, your, your full day use on, the, on London transport, uh, which was a great way of encouraging schoolboys to take a day off of uh, school and just really <laughs> lurk around the West End. <laughs> Well, I was delighted when they finally started tying in the overground lines into the public transport network, as far as the Oyster card goes, because that was a huge omission for quite a few, it seems like a few years, but uh, Ken sorted that out. Mr Reasonable, in the comments section to this story, says, uh, he points out it's not free. Residents in each borough have to pick up the bill, and the cost of uh, this uh, supposedly free travel will be paid through the GLA precept. Boris is happy to claim the publicity for giving this away, but he seems shy when you ask who actually pays. In Barnet, the cost of freedom passes is approximately £70 per household. This will push that bill even higher. I don't begrudge, says Mr Reasonable, people having a freedom pass, but I do wish Boris and TfL would be honest as to how it is funded. Seems like his name. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> Little to disagree with there. The historical quiz is hoving into sight uh, for two guests with their feet firmly planted in the world of uh, London's history. Uh, there's a moment or two to let you know first what's on in London in the week ahead. One of the big openings for the West End this autumn is Cabaret at the Savoy Theatre. Starring Pop Idol winner Will Young in his West End debut, this production is a revival of Rufus Norris's Olivier Award-winning version of the show. Based on Christopher Isherwood's book I Am a Camera, Cabaret is set during the Nazis' rise to power in 1930s Berlin, focusing on the relationship between 19-year-old English cabaret star Sally Bowles and a young American writer. Soap star Michelle Ryan takes on the role of Sally Bowles. Cabaret opens on the 9th of October. It runs until January. Tickets are uh, pretty pricey. They range from £35 through to £85. Visit the ATG Tickets website to find out more. Our dance recommendation for this week comes from across the pond. The Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet Company is based in New York and is making its highly anticipated UK debut in London this week. The company will perform three works of powerful physicality and classical technique at Sadler's Wells from Thursday the 11th of October to Saturday the 13th. Look out for some intriguing creations from some of today's most provocative dance makers. Tickets are between £12 and £27. Visit Sadler's Wells. Now, Tate Modern is pitching two modern visual artists against each other for their latest show. Photographer and filmmaker William Klein and Japanese photographer Daido Moriyama both worked in New York, Tokyo and Paris and made photography books that reflected their environments while pushing the boundaries of avant-garde art. They also had a shared desire to convey street life and political protest, from anti-war demonstrations and gay pride marches to the effects of globalisation and urban deprivation, and their success at this will be examined in the exhibition. William Klein and Daido Mariyama runs from Wednesday the 10th of October until January next year. Tickets, £12.70 with concessions available. Visit tate.org.uk to find out more. 
Another top art exhibition opens in London this week, this time at the National. Richard Hamilton, The Late Works, is a highly personal exhibition by one of Britain's most influential artists. The show traces an intriguing path, leading to his unfinished and unseen final work, which is called Balzac A plus B plus C. Up until his death, aged 89, Richard Hamilton, who died last year, was planning this major exhibition of recent works, specifically for the National Gallery, including work never seen before by the public. This new exhibition encapsulates many of his uh, significant pieces from the last decades, with his international reputation soaring during that time. The exhibition is free, and it runs from Wednesday, the 10th of October, until January. Go to nationalgallery.org.uk. And finally, City Showcase London 2012 is a live music festival dedicated to new acts which takes place in and around Soho and central London each year. 2012 sees the festival celebrating its 10th year and venues taking part include the 100 Club, the Borderlines Bar Rumba, the Purple Turtle and uh, retail outlets such as Apple Ugg Coast, Ted Baker and so on. This year there'll also be an electronic music programme at venues such as 93 Feet East and Cafe 1001. Confirmed artists include Ash Graham, Mark Morris, Lillian Todd-Jones, Yellow Wire and Floodliners. The festival runs from Tuesday the 9th of October until Saturday the 13th visit cityshowcase.co.uk and of course you can find out more about all of the events just listed and many more besides as well as all the stories we've been discussing in today's show at londonist.com so christopher fowler and Fiona Rule. It sounds as though many of the uh, venues around town are kind of bedding in for the winter there. Any of those uh, grab your uh, interest? Uh, yes, um, I'd quite like to go and see the Cedar Lake uh, Contemporary Ballet at Sadler's Wells. Um, I am a big fan of ballet. My mum's a ballet teacher, so I was kind of brought up with it. Um, but I don't like the prices of the West End theatres. I shan't mention them. And I always think that Sadler's Wells gives you a really great evening's entertainment for really not very much money. So I will be going to Sadler's Wells. It also gives you bottled water from the Saddler's Well in, in the bar um, at a slightly more expensive end, Candor and Ebb's uh, Cabaret. Uh, this production is quite amazing because uh, the last time it was on with, I think, Alan Cumming, um, it does actually end with a depiction of the, the concentration camps, um, which is a, it's an extremely um, dark approach to the material. It actually shows up the power of the material, populating it with uh, soap stars and singers, uh, is uh, undermines its strength a bit, but I'm sure that uh, Will Young will will do it justice. Yes, maybe they're uh, hoping to to uh, break out of type or something along those lines. Well, uh, it's the moment we have not been waiting for. It is the historical quiz. Five questions, and I think five points up for grabs today. Well, we'll start with Monday, the 1st of October, 1868. St Pancras Station. Yes, we're back to it's all around St Pancras today. St Pancras Station is officially opened as the London terminus for the Midland Railway. Despite what? Despite uh, opposition from the neighbours? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, no, not right. Uh, despite the fact that the track hadn't actually reached the station yet? I, I like where you're going with that. I, I'm going to give you the point. Uh, despite its construction being incomplete, part of the buildings would form the iconic Gothic St Pancras Chambers, which housed the Midland Grand Hotel, now replaced by the St Pancras Renaissance London Hotel and some posh apartments. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tuesday, the 2nd of October, 1909, which venue hosts its first ever rugby match? 
It's got to be Twickenham, hasn't it? Of course it's Twickenham, yes. Twickenham Stadium. Harlequins beat Richmond 14-10. Two, two ahead here, Fiona. Hmm. But there's time. guess the last one. <laughs> there's, there's three still to go. Wednesday the 3rd of October 1975. After holding several of the staff at a Knightsbridge Italian restaurant hostage in a storeroom, three gunmen surrender to police. The hostages are released unharmed. But how long were they held for? This is the Spaghetti House siege, and I think it was about five days. It was not five days. I'll go for slightly less. I think they were held for quite a long time. I'll I'll go for three days. It was three days. Yes, well done, Fiona, again. This is looking uh, dangerously like a a, a whitewash. Do I mean a whitewash? No, I mean something else. Stitch up. (laughs) No, not a stitch up. (laughs) Dangerously like a landslide. Thursday, the 4th of October, 1911. London Underground's first escalator goes into service at which tube station? Earl's Court. It it is Earl's Court, yeah, straight in there. Dignity saved. Friday, the 5th of October, but in which year? 31 people die and over 400 are injured as two trains collide head-on at Ladbroke Grove Junction, two miles west of Paddington Station. What year did that take place? Oh, well, it was recent, wasn't it? Um... 2004? Not as recent as that, no. Oh, I would have said something like 86 or something. No. no. Okay, I'm going to go for 98. Sounds pretty accurate. Yes, it was. You're bearing out gracefully. Yes, it was, it was in, uh, in 1999, an awful event in 1999. And uh, getting pretty close to that gives us a. You've been thrashed, Christopher. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no way around this a 4-1 uh, victory to uh, Fiona Rule this week well we're right up against the clock so uh, really there's just time to remind people who've been listening of uh, where we can find information about uh, London's Labyrinth about the many many titles of Christopher Fowler uh, Fiona as the victor would you care to lead off <laughs> um, well um, London's Labyrinth is available um, now from any good bookshops and obviously the um, the, the really obvious online retailer um, and it's published by Ian Allen Publishing Fantastic. And you've got a website? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's FionaRule.com, um, and you can find out more um, about London's Labyrinth and my other books there. Christopher Fowler. Uh, yeah, uh, Brian's and May and the Invisible Code, which uh, looks at Bedlam and uh, the mysterious codes that govern London life, is out from Transworld at the moment in hardback, as are nine other volumes of Brian to May um, stories. And my next book out will be Invisible Ink, well, why, London's, why England's um, authors disappeared. Yes, I'm particularly looking forward to that one. That sounds great. Thank you both for being here today and for hosting us, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.